Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Friction Log. Uh, today I have a guest with me that it is actually somewhere around here. It's live. Uh, we don't have Rick today, but we have Kinsey. Kinsey works with Rick on one study, which we have mentioned in uh, in previous episodes a little bit of what they do, but I really wanted to have him and to explain what does he do, explain us uh, kind of like a one sentence or two on one study, and then get to talk about product building today. So Kinsey, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I've All heard right. a lot about friction log. It's I'm finding finally a guest. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome. So uh, why don't we start with uh, what have you been up to? Who are you? What do you do? What do you like to do? Things like that. Yeah, well, what I've been up to is building one study with Rick. Um, that's taken, I'd say, all of my time. Um, started that out. I started that journey, um, let's see, August of last year, maybe September. Um, and then Rick joined up in, I want to say, late December, January. Anyway, so most of my time has been spent really focusing on customer discovery and really trying to understand the problem that we're attempting to solve. Okay. Uh, and how would you, can you put one study in one sentence? Like, what are you trying to solve uh, right now? I know you're doing product discovery, yeah. but try to describe uh, what is one study. Yeah, you know, that I think is the hardest part of a startup is coming with that one word description of what your company does. Um, so I've made tons of like really bad attempts at this. So basically we allow companies to conduct qualitative research at scale. And then I'll add on using conversational AI. But really, our, our, our goal, our mission, what we do is qualitative research at scale. Okay. So you, but for in order for you to do that, you also have to do your own research about your product market yes. fit and stuff like that. So it's almost like by building it, you're almost kind of like ingesting that same knowledge and applying it to your own product, which seems very interesting. And I assume that involves talking to, a bunch of people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like uh, how many people have you talked to? Uh, kind of like the kind of profile that you're looking to uh, to understand those kind of things. Yeah, it was a it was an interesting journey. We started out with the idea of it, the, the the origin story is really Rick's to tell. Um, but we I took kind of the direction of qualitative research into a B two B product category. So. B2B was talking, that's my people, uh, B2B enterprise. That's what I've done my whole career. Um, so I went and talked to a lot of product managers that were in that space. And candidly, th there just wasn't like a ton of like, oh my God, this is amazing. There was, I would, I would characterize the interest as warm. Um, and it took us a while to figure out the problem was that these people didn't have a scale problem. So when we started talking to product managers, maybe building apps, maybe in mobile, maybe building more subscriber driven type things, really B2C, then we started seeing a lot more interest and eyebrows going up like, okay, this, this is a potential game changer. So really I pivoted in the discovery and started talking to app developers, product managers in that space, growth marketers, growth product managers, anyone really who had growth, retention and some connection to the product that that's who I was talking to. The one detour we took was we really explored a ton of other options like communities. So we looked at veterans. Um, we looked at education as possible use cases. Cause at the end of the day, anyone who talks to a lot of people is 
a possible customer of ours, but we've really narrowed in on kind of this business to consumer direction. So you're a business to business company that yeah. there are your customers are business to consumers. Yeah. So right? B2B to C as the, yeah. the buzzword. These days. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and when you're talking with all these people, you narrow down your market, like what kind of notes do you take? Like, do you just ask them, like, do you have a problem with user retention or where do you start there? Yeah, I'll be honest here. I started out a little from the hip. So I have some formal training in kind of doing this kind of research, um, from military, um, from an information collection, which is different than intelligence, but from an information collection and, we tend not to use scripts in those scenarios. Um, we tend to think about requirements, what you want to learn. But I, I, it took me a while to learn, but I really needed to come to the party with a little bit more structure. And so over time, I'd say over the past couple months, I've really built out like a series of questions that I can easily deviate from because people will say things and you're like, oh, that's really interesting. I, I want to learn more about that. But I really start out with a structured script that... I can use as kind of a starting point. And it also just, it, I don't have to think when I'm starting the interview, because that's the hardest part. You've built rapport, you've asked them where they're from, and now you want to kind of jump in. And if you have to remember that question every single time, it just, it, it puts kind of a, uh, in the conversation. Whereas if you're just like, okay, let's get started. My first question is X. Um, and that first question changes. I'm, I'm always changing my script. Like every conversation, I'm always making little notes. Yeah. I, yeah. With every feedback that you get, every experience, then you start to add some of that yeah. um, into that. Exactly. Um, it's very common that I see building products, building solutions within the products. Very, I want to say like leading questions or very like, would you like to do this or that? Don't you have this? Which the answer sometimes it's yes. Um, but you kind of like are leading towards yeah. that and that's pretty common. How do you manage to stay away from Again, that? By having a script and, you know, I went to the Steve Blank, you know, he did four steps of the epiphany, pretty well-known startup guy, really started the lean startup, um, revolution. And he's got some great videos on not doing leading questions. I will say again, some of the training I've had in the past on conducting interviews and information collection, I'm really good at not leading people and not coming in with kind of a priori assumptions. I'm, I, I'd say I'm better than most at that. So I don't fall into that trap, but again, having a script and then just really letting the conversation goes where it goes and don't try to drive it. I, I also, and, I, and this is something that I'm culprit of, um, awkward silence, right? You ask a question and then there's silence because the other person is thinking about something or and sometimes <laughs> they're thinking about the actual answer or sometimes they think about like, what does he want me to say, right? Yes. Like that that kind of thing. I guess that you're very good at silence. Like you don't care. You're like, well, super cool. With okay, <laughs> that's not me. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> Yeah, and I, you know, I've been in a few where the other people that maybe were interviewing were uncomfortable with the silence. But again, like you just, you got to let people kind of like think about it a little bit and, and really try to get them to ask stories, you know, to get, the, to pull those stories out and stories don't come to people automatically. Like if they've never been asked this before, they got to think about it. So yeah, being comfortable with silence for pauses and breaks and not trying to fill it super important. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So a lot of your conversation, or let me roll back for a second. Your whole company is about uh, qualitative studies, right? Yep. 
do you use any metrics in these interviews or do you go to the qualitative side in your decision making or how you're taking this product? Like how much do you balance those two? Because that's really what I want to talk today. Um, I come from a or I come from a background of building products too. I happen to work in a company right now that it is a data company, right? It's a ton of data. We try to make sense of it. We try to make decisions out of that data. There is some qualitative analysis, but at the end of the day, it's a it's a company that it is just has terabytes of data. Um, so to me, what you're doing is totally the opposite. I don't think either can be 100% true all the time, but how do you deal with with that uh, qualitative? Like, do you do any metrics at all? We don't, at this point, we don't really have any uses metrics. We do probably do some quantitative analysis around like, hey, five people said this, two people said this, like the, the, the quantitative data that we use is not statistically significant, but we're also solving a different kind of problem. We're, we're trying to understand like what we're going to build. And I think when you're doing some blue sky stuff, like getting really wrapped around the numbers can be dangerous because um, we don't have users, right? So we don't really know what the behaviors are. Um, so I say like we do some very basic quantitative analysis. Now I will say there is a difference between zero and one and there have been multiple features, usually me getting excited about them. And, you know, Rick will generally be like, hey, man, like who's asked for these? I'm like, dude, this is just a great feature. He's like, why don't we just wait? Like we got a lot of things to do. So he definitely kind of calms me down. And I think, again, you know, that's a quantitative measure. We have zero feedback for that feature. So I think that's important. So definitely using that and we're building some things in there to capture usage and things like that. But by and large, I don't know, I'm a little skeptical of the quant approach to product building. I think there's a place for it, obviously, but I think we've, the whole data-driven met the making. Just, yeah. yeah, it's just, it drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, and there is a lot of companies and every time like you build the website or you build the product and the first thing that you probably don't do Google Analytics anymore, right? You yeah. do mixed panel or something like that, but, um, but it's like, oh, I got to put some analytics in my site to try to understand. But that, like, even people that are just starting, I don't know, blogging, right? Like, they want to know numbers. And there is a little bit of dopamine, I guess, yeah, that you yeah, get, absolutely. even on a personal level, <laughs> on a company level. You can share that. Like, yeah. uh, data is just there. And I happen to work with a lot of it. But um, why do you think that people don't focus that much on uh, qualitative data? I, I think there's two reasons. I think the first, which is a very valid reason, it's expensive and it's time consuming and it's hard to talk to customers, especially when you have millions of them. Um, so it's hard to set times up with them, um, especially if you certain types of consumer apps, like they're just not interested in coming in on Zoom. Um, they're not interested in, you know, engaging you. And so there, there's a lot of energy that you can really spend there chasing them down. So it's expensive, it's time consuming, it's hard. Um, I do think though that a lot of people really get over consumed with statistical significance. And I've heard in multiple conversations, you know, I don't like qualitative data because if you only get 10 or 12, you know, answers, is that like, is that better than, you know, behavioral data? And I, I would argue sometimes it is. Um, so I think there's a bias that somehow qualitative data is less important. And again, I think it just matters what you're applying it to. I think the application of the data and how you use it 
it's is really important to understand that. You know, I, I, a great example is you can get behavioral data and understand why people aren't clicking on a button, or maybe it's just cheaper to like go ask five of your customers why they're not clicking on the button rather than guessing and doing A-B testing and all this other stuff. Like, why don't you just ask? Because if five people tell you the same thing, that's probably the answer. Yeah, um, I know, I, I totally get it. I think also there is this notion that because technology scales, easily right you don't need more people to get more clients you're always going to capture the biggest audience that you can yeah. and data is going to give you that answer simpler than going and talk to them but i also you know my background there is also yeah. a part of me where my dad had a small business <laughs> and his business was making personal relationships with like one-offs right yeah. like customers that were uh, so i also saw that growing up customers that were like asking for this one thing that nobody else was wanting for but there there are some of the most loyal customers that throughout the years right like so and then moving into the tech side of the house like you always are wary about having one of those big customers because if they go in a year then you're, yeah, done, you're done right like exactly. so it, it's always that balance that back and forth um, but what has changed? Uh, is this because this uh, we have new technology available to do some of this? Is this because you're seeing some signals? What are you like? Why you guys start doing this right now? Because I don't think there is anything new in it. No, there's not. I mean, well, what's new is generative AI, and we'll come back to that. But I think both of us have a passion for listening to people and hearing what they're telling you. And again, like they'll tell you why. Again, you can have a lot of behavior data that people aren't clicking a button, but none of that data tells you why they're not clicking the button. And to get to why, you have to ask. The other ways you can guess, right? You can guess, you can say, well, they're not, they're not clicking this button because it's red. So we're going to change it. We're going to do an A-B test and we'll do green and purple buttons. And, we'll, and then we'll, oh, look, 52% of them are purple and they click that. It's because it wasn't a green, like... Why don't we just ask them why? Because maybe they don't like the words on there or maybe they're not interested in what's behind the button. Like, you know, so you kind of lose like that sort of information. And I think we both come from a place where I would just rather know why. I would just rather ask people and find out why rather than guess with like stacks and stacks of data. And I, I think I've just been the victim of a lot of bad data practices in my professional career because i'm in I, I come from a support background mm -hmm. so um there's a lot of opportunities for people to misunderstand signals from support um because they often don't want to accept that qualitative feedback they don't want to hear what your customers are telling you um so i do think like there's a huge drive to try to use that qualitative data right now but there is this weird wall around a lot of product managers um that I just think a lot of product managers get too many inputs and they don't know how to like manage all that data. Um, and it's just easier to, and I definitely heard this, especially with the B2B guys. One of the, one of the quotes I really loved, and I've used this a lot since then is qualitative data does not survive the silo. And the, the inverse being, if you have quant data, it will, it's easy to ship to other places in the organization and people just believe it. They're like, oh, well, 47% of the people said this, therefore it must be true. But if you try to tell a qual story, for some reason, it just doesn't resonate. Like CEOs, CFOs, like they, they want the, the, the real data. So 
I, you know, I, I just think there's some culture, you know, shifts that have to happen with this, but technology is going to create some opportunities for qual data that we've never seen before. I, I also have happened to run into product managers that use um, a lot of inputs and a lot of data to avoid making decisions <laughs> and more specifically to avoid yes. making a bad decision. Yes. But it's like, oh, the data is telling us to do this. Um, and even from an engineering perspective, this is not just product managers like, hey, you like when you're building an API, you're talking about rate limits and stuff like that. You want to have the data, right? When, instead of saying, hey, um, I happen to run into an API that it is used for reporting. But guess what? People are not using it for reporting every six hours, right? They're basically batch downloading all the data at 4 a.m. and you get your spikes and it's really hard to like that has to be a change in the product, right? So, but it's a reaction that you get through support. Exactly. And then when you present the data, it's like, what do you mean we have to scale our service at 4 a.m.? And like, well, that's, that's where the traffic is, exactly. right? So we either do an autoscaler that it is delayed or we do it really fast. But I also have seen that. And, and this is something that I see all the time. The data that we have um, at my, my company, I don't talk a lot about it, but it is first party data, right? Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. is a lot cleaner. Yeah. 100%. Every time you get into third party data realm and yeah. this is like trying to buy stuff from aggregators and stuff like that, it's just as bad as <laughs> not asking customers and yeah. not capturing any data. Right. It's the wall guess. It's less than 40 percent, blah, blah, yeah. blah. The fact that we like I have a job that allows me to build solutions with data is because the quality of that data it's, happens it's to really be good. very yeah. good. And we're conscious about like privacy and we're doing a bunch of stuff. Right. Like. We're not being wasteful even on resources. We're trying to, uh, at the end of the day, part of the business generates ads. And there is there is this whole notion of the best ad is the one that you really want to see without us knowing who yeah, you are. Exactly. Right? Mm, so that like that, that combination has been something that really delivers the value. And, and we see it on every, um, on every single solution that we put out there. Um, customers come to us because, hey, you measure the stuff that I really care. You're not aggregating some other data. You're not, mm. have, you don't have an SDK that you embed into another application, right? It's just our own and operated uh, markets as well as uh, figuring out uh, clean rooms, right? Like how do we expose this data in a way that we don't lose control of it because you trust us with that data. So I, I think something you brought up is really interesting because I think I think where quant data is really powerful and where I think like it would be terrible to use qualitative data is this example of like usage, like usage spikes. Like we don't want to ask customers when they're using the app. We just want to look at when they're using the app. So we're going to build like, you know, again, we're going to put a scaler in for a certain time. Or we're going to, you know, we're going to make deployment decisions. We're going to make resourcing decisions and things like that. So I think there absolutely is a place for quant data where you don't really care what the customer's telling you. So I think it's about like, because there's certain types of behaviors that are predictable and you can predict them through quantitative data. But then there's things like, why are they doing things? Like we don't know why they're using it at 4 a.m., but we know they're using it 4 a.m. So let's, let's set up the infrastructure so that we can support 4 a.m. usage. But we may wanna know why too, right? Um, so I think, again, it's just understanding those two use cases. Knowing what they know about this particular use case, I think the why is because that's what they have done in the past. Sure. Right? 
That doesn't mean that there is a better way. That doesn't mean that we cannot set up a clean room where we share that data and not in an API that it is very expensive for them to ingest, for us to to serve. Like there are other ways to do it, but yeah, yeah, you don't get that unless you ask like, hey, what's going on here? Like like, there are patterns about like, hey, we do uh, impersonation of users. So, or we have a system user that pulls everything. Mm -hmm. Like why do you choose one versus the other one? Um, you don't get that. You just get the spikes and like, hey, there is like 500s going on at <laughs> four in the morning. She's like 1 a.m. here. Everything is East Coast time. Um, that's not fun. Um, okay, so collection is hard on the kind of data that you're capturing, right? Yeah. I would argue that on the on the um, quali- uh, on our side is the amount of data that yeah, is hard. Absolutely. Like, how do you distill? that data like you probably don't have as much but we always have trouble there's a ton of aggregation tools but it's really easy to make a mistake um, yeah, so sure. what happens in your world what what's your solution yeah there? well so with the qualitative it definitely like this is a huge this is probably the biggest problem with qualitative data it's relatively easy to collect i mean once you get someone in an interview and we're talking and someone's taking notes or we have auto transcription because we're using gong or zoom or whatever we still have piles and piles of data and i think this is the game changer of generative AI. Like this is what people, honestly, when I talked to B2B product managers, this was the problem they were really in, interested in solving, which is like, I've got tons of data that I just, I, I haven't had time to collate. I haven't had time to review. I haven't had time to synthesize and analyze. Um, and a lot of them were using ChatGPT. They were copy pasting, putting stuff in and doing stuff like that. So I think generative AI is, the tool that will accelerate this. It's still an 80, 90% solution. It's not a hundred percent solution. We see this with our tool. We see insights being generated, but we have some, you know, we have some features that allow you to go a little bit deeper and find different things. We're all figuring this out, but the challenge with LLMs is it's basically conventional wisdom. So it's going to go through your stuff. It may find some interesting things, but it really is based on the large language models idea of what's interesting, not necessarily what you think is interesting. So you have to inject some context, but short answer, AI is the game changer here because we can process, you know, a five, seven minute interview in like 30 seconds. And for a human to do that, it's longer than 30 seconds. And it's a lot longer than 30. I was talking to a potential customer of ours and they have, four questions. They have 200 people that answered four questions and it's taken them weeks to go through that stuff. And bias starts to creep in. Um, if you're in support, it's always the product's fault. I can tell you that's mm-hmm. true as a support person. Um, <laughs> we do have a product <laughs> person. Exactly. It's, it's never, it's, it's always the product's fault when there's when unhappy customers. Um, but anyway, I mean, I will say like bias exists and, you know, I think, yeah, as a support person, I am so guilty of just being so pessimistic of the product. And like anytime anything positive comes in, I'm pretty dismissive of it. And I think this is another opportunity where the the AI will, hey, here's all the good stuff that's going on and here's all the bad stuff that's going on. Because if I did the synthesis, it'd be a big pile of bad stuff. And then I'd, I'd be like, yeah, there's, there's really not that much good stuff happening with our product. Um, so yeah, I think those are the opportunities with AI. Okay, two things. I did. I, I'm pretty sure, like, if you go to Amazon and you check any any product, they now do a synthesis or like yep. a, a condensation of all the reviews. 
I have seen some that are hilarious. It says, hey, some customers like it because it's pretty, because I don't yeah. know, it's red. And some customers dislike it because it's red. <laughs> and then some customer says that it that it's, uh, I don't know, whatever you're buying is your, it goes larger in the size or it's smaller. Like, it's so confusing. There's still so much going on. But the other thing um, that I want to mention is you mentioned um, leadership is skeptical about it. And yeah. the way that I think about this is, they, because we have had data for so long, we're just fixated on it. Yes. Um, but for example, we have dogs that can smell a disease or drugs <laughs> or a bunch of stuff that we don't understand. We kind of know that their nose is a lot more powerful yeah, than ours. But we don't know why. But it's pretty much a skepticism, right? Like, yeah. It, but we still use it. It's just the maturity of AI as it gets, I think feel like it's going to go towards that where we're just going to trust it and we're not there yet, but this is probably a good time to start uh, making it better. Do you, as you're going through some of this and, and you said that it is not perfect, um, are you doing like continuous improvement on the LLMs that you're using to try to narrow down some of those paths? Or I, I, I would love bias? to say yes. We just don't have the time right now to do continuous. I do probably more research on our collection side so i have some tools to test how good the interviews are um but i think it's fair to say that we have a pretty blue sky ahead of us in terms of opportunities to make our analysis and synthesis better it's definitely top of mind for us but we need some customer feedback because i think the amazon example is really interesting because some people may be interested about it being red and other people may be red and then you know other people may be like, who cares? So I think like one man synthesis, one woman synthesis, um, one person synthesis doesn't mean it's useful for everybody, right? So I think where I see a world is where you tell us what's important and then we pull those things out and then we tell you what's important and then we may present to you some things that you haven't thought about. But it really needs to be requirements driven. And so again, the Amazon case, like, the color may not be important to me for the flashlight, but it may be really important for other people when yeah. they're buying a flat. That may be like their top criteria. I don't care if it's like works or not. I just want it red to match something in my room. Um, you well, know, I, I think on shoes there and it's yeah. like, for example, I'm five ten, right? Like what is like the people that are like, or I, I'm 10 on shoes, I'm five ten, whatever. I wait this much. Like, out of all the reviews that you have, create an, an, a synthesis yes. based on yeah, what yeah, kind exactly. of like correlates yes. with me more than because yeah. there can be some other person that it is 5'10 and it's a totally different game, right? 100%. Because of all other things like yeah. weight and race and whatever, right? So, um, okay. Um, yes, um, that's, that's very interesting. You also mentioned AI is the game changer here. Um, you're building a solution that it is powered by AI and a yep. bunch of things. How do you use AI? Like, do you use ChatGPT in your regular work? Like, like how much are you using AI also to feed your product, going back to you? Yeah, we're using it a fair amount. I mean, I think, you know, like we're doing some product marketing ideas and I definitely bounce ideas through there. They're often terrible. Um, in fact, they're usually pretty bad. I'll have it like, hey, what's a metaphor for this? Or give me some, what's a good two word combination that describes X? And a lot of times they're pretty bad, um, but they still kind of get the juices flowing. And I think that's definitely where I use it. I'll use it to edit. 
um, documents. So like we're applying to different, you know, accelerators or doing different things and I'll absolutely like throw in something, um, have it edited, take that and then rework it into my voice or something like that. So it's definitely becoming more and more part of my workflow. I, I feel like when I use it, especially around code, I know when when it's not right, but it also seeing what's not right is like watching over somebody else's coding, right? Like you're like, oh no, no, you're making that mistake, right? Like, which is annoying. You're sharing your screen, it's all awkward. But if you have a machine doing that, it's actually yeah. not that bad because now I look at the code that it spilled out and I'm like, yeah, you kind of like have the idea, but you're missing this. It just makes me think in a different way as a reviewer or whatever you want to call it's, it. I, you know, it's funny. I can't believe I totally forgot that use case, but I think I've more or less given up like programming from scratch. So, I mean, I do a fair amount of Python programming. I have no idea what Rick does because it's all JavaScript. Um, Nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I'm not definitely a production coder, but I do write a lot of scripts to do things at the command line, processing documents, integrating information, I have more or less given up writing from scratch and I just, I give it, and I probably spend as much time using ChatGPT to write code as I probably would just if I wrote it myself, but I do feel like I'm faster with it. And I, some things just come out, like they come out perfect every time. You know, a great example is like if I'm writing a command line program and okay, I was using sys, to bring in the command line arguments. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna bring in an org parse library. This is Python. If you don't speak mm -hmm. Python, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But, you know, there's a good library for parsing command line arguments that's way more powerful than just using your standard things that are available um, in Bash or ZSH or whatever. And so I'll just say it, hey, change all the arguments to use org parse and boom, it just does it. And it doesn't like, it just takes out so much busy work. And I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. It's... Commenting code too. It's great for commenting code. Like, comment my code, please. And boop, it's 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 a pretty good solution because it knows what it's doing. It knows what the code's doing. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Uh, I am not a Python developer, but I was working in Python for the last six months. And I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know mm, the yeah. syntax. And it was perfect. It was yeah. like, okay, I get it. And it, it was 80% right, not 100%. But that was just enough. Like I had the basis of what I wanted to do. Um, so it it's, yeah, it, it's there. It's just, I don't know. It's like a different mode. As you said, it's probably the same time that you're spending, but you're, you are not like frustrated yes. by, am I missing a library yeah, exactly. that will make my life easier? Usually yeah. they will give it for you. And again, I'm not doing anything super crazy. I'm, I'm doing pretty, like pretty simple scripts that are processing data um using well-known well again i think python is probably the ideal language because there's so much information about python and the llm i did a test with some bizarre firmware language that a buddy of mine uses because he does some pretty hardcore hardware firmware stuff and it i couldn't read anything i had no idea that it speeds but he laughed at it he's like yeah this isn't really that good but there's zero references to it online. Like it's a super esoteric language. It had no chance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, it, I have also seen some of that with Swift UI, right? Like yeah. fairly yeah. new um, and yes, and it's changing. Every release is changing. So whatever code is getting out of it, it's yeah. probably not gonna work on the latest version. So I, I, I will say I did, Rick wrote the, the first version of his API and I dropped all his API docs in there, which there wasn't much. 
Um, it was pretty thin. That's not a knock. It's moving fast. Mm -hmm. um, and I basically said, hey, write a program that uses his API to, to, to do what I needed to do, uh, which was to conduct an interview. And it was about an 80, 90% solution. Like it got really close using the API documents that I had no idea about. I just injected that as context. So that was pretty cool. And I was off to the races after that. Yeah, I was doing the same. I was migrating an old MySQL database mm. into Superbase, Postgres, episode of the comedy, whatnot. And it just helped me a lot on MySQL. On rusty. <laughs> exactly. Like, you have no, like, there are ways to do the stuff that I was doing way faster. <laughs> exactly. And it was just, yeah, it was very helpful. SQL is well documented. And it's not like, I, I've asked it to do things in SQL that is like, that's is a terrible idea, kids. You don't do this in SQL. <laughs> use a use like pandas or some other, you know, infer because I was trying to pivot and it's like SQL is really not good at pivoting, but try this. And it didn't work. So I was like, okay, it's right. I gotta do something different. So yeah. But SQL is really basic and simple. So it's really good at SQL, I think. Well, yeah, it, it's yeah, it, it's one of those that I was amazed by it. The other one was this uh it's an old system. It happens to use a lot of XML. Yeah, and just reading XML attributes and nodes and stuff Make like that was my nightmare. And now it's like, oh yeah, I can do that. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, I give me this back, and like it, it just makes some of those things easier. Turn this into JSON so I can read it. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, good. Um, anything else you want to add from a AI is changing the game? Anything else that you're seeing um, that kind of like justifies what you're doing? before we move into my favorite section, which is building products. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think we've covered a lot of it. I mean, the, it's still new. And I, I read a really interesting article this morning. I need to go back and close read it, but it's kind of about some of the limitations of LLM. There was this big debate against these two. One guy said, I'm an actual intelligence researcher versus the AI. And it was kind of a heated argument, but I think there are some limitations to AI that we don't fully appreciate. But one thing I'll say about us using it is that we don't have a hallucination problem because we don't create information because our system is either taking information and then summarizing it, synthesizing and analyzing it, or it's asking questions. And so even if it asks a weird question, that's not a bad thing. That's not the end of the world. I don't create information like we don't have the war of 1812 being fought in 1940 and some of the weird, bizarre things that I've seen come out of like, hallucinations. So I think that's a huge advantage for us is that we're kind of turning the, the generative LLM idea kind of on its side and using it to generate questions instead of generating information, which I think is a real different use case, which plays well to its strengths. Yeah. A lot of hallucinations are when people take the output as a fact. Right? Yes. And that's when, and, and we're when it doesn't make sense. So right? there's no facts. Like we're not presenting facts, mm -hmm. you know, Okay, uh, great. That that's a great take. Uh, there's going to be a lot more heated conversations. I'm I'm sure <laughs> yes. as it matures, and Absolutely. the whole concept of rack has been something that we have talked in in several episodes before, which is like they're trained until uh, a certain point of time, yeah. and then your rack is actually allowing it to look at the extra data, and that's when curation and yep. and continuous improvement really works. Uh, I want to come back into building products. Yep. We talk about like qual versus quant data. Um, and I think we agree that it is not one or the other one. So Absolutely. 
give me some use cases or when do you think one is useful versus the other one? I, I think when you're building new features and you want to understand user behavior, I think why, you know, so I think why they want something is really important. I think whenever you need to know why, like you, you got to ask people, you got to talk to them because data rarely is going to show you why. And so I think that's a really important use case. Again, knowing when or how things are happening, that's probably a better use case for quant. Um, kind of Sarah and a star um, <laughs> <laughs> as I'm thinking about it. But yeah. Um, I think, yeah, we won't, we won't go down that language rabbit hole. But <clears throat> yeah, I, and, I, and I think for, but I think there's a lot of culture things too. Um, I think different companies value different things. Like I talked to a product manager at Apple and they definitely appreciate qualitative data. Like she said, it's all about the story. It's about telling a story. You want to back it up with data. You can't just show up and say, Hey, I talked to this guy and I think we should do this, but they'll listen to that and they want to anchor it in some sort of data, but they don't need like, you know, databases full of, you know, data lakes full of like data to prove that this is right or wrong. Cause I, what I found is like my experience is when people use the word data driven, what they're really saying is I'm going to cherry pick data to support my decision. <laughs> yeah. Your, <laughs> your hypothesis is yeah. already, your, your, your yeah. mind is already made up and you're just using data yeah. to justify it. Exactly. And sometimes that's, that's good. There are, frameworks like A-B testing, right? Like yeah. for what we call experimentation. Yeah. The typical use case is the color of the buttons yeah. that you mentioned. Like this is green, this is purple, which one do you click? Um, how, and that is very, I would say, very quantitative analysis, yeah. right? Yeah, like absolutely. it's just percentages. Do you see A-B testing frameworks going towards more qualitative um, things? Like for example, in the case of your interviews on one study, like when you get an interview, can you create multiple versions of that interview? Like, how do you, um, have you thought about it? Is that? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it that way. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I need to think about that a little bit more. That's a really interesting idea about kind of A-B testing these interviews. Cause I think it's a good use case for that as long as you have enough data to like, as long as you're going to like do enough interviews. I mean, I've done a lot of interviews. I definitely, I, I think I've AB tested now that you're kind of, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I've done some AB testing unknowingly. Yeah, of course. You're always, you're always iterating as <laughs> yeah, you go. Exactly. It's just, yeah. Do you make it part, part of your framework? Because yeah. you always disregard AB testing or not always, but always put it in, in the quantitative analysis. Yes. Right. And yeah. very much focus on, um, UI interfaces, like web interfaces, yeah. right? But it's really everywhere. Uh, it, it goes with training models with your training data set yeah. versus like all of that is in there because I think it's broader than that. I was just curious, like, hey, this could be something that you could take. No, that, like, I, I, I'm, and that's a really interesting idea. I want to think about that a little bit, like how, because I think, yeah, I, yeah, I, mean, I, <laughs> I keep saying this. I need to think about this before I have a strong opinion on this. Um, <laughs> you will I'm be just, back. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely like kind of mulling this over. Like, I think this is a really interesting way to, and again, I think there's an opportunity here if you can qualitatively interview people at scale. Like, this gets really interesting because, again, if I can, if I can only afford to like interview twenty or thirty people. Uh, I don't know if it's worth like splitting those into half and, and doing A or a B, but if I could do like a thousand people like really quickly, 
That gets really interesting. Now nah, that's cool. I like this idea. Okay, I have another idea for you. <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> this is something that I talked to Rick about when we were chatting about like some of the experiments that we were doing on friction log. I was like, hey, you should probably do, uh, you know, when you're you either quit or you get fired and you get your exit interview, right? Like an exit interview for your products or a new product version of saying like, I don't know, you're Apple and you do kind of like an exit interview for mm -hmm. the iPhone 15. What was well, what yep. was not well, powered by AI. That's like the exit interview mm -hmm. is the next product that you're going to build for me because I'm going to use yeah. it for a bunch of stuff that I do. <laughs> well, we've been doing, I mean, so I think, you know, in the success world, and, and I do hear B2C people talking about this a lot. It's churn, right? It's a churn opportunity. We did run for a customer. We ran a churn interview. So we hit, you know, thousands of customers who had left the app within a month. And we all, we hit them with an interview to understand like why they were churning. Um, so we are doing that today. And that's a, nice. it's definitely an important technique, getting that exit interview and, I think the I think the the advantage of being upfront about it being an AI interview is that the likelihood of you getting um, candid feedback is much higher because the problem with success managers is that they're nice and like customers don't want to break the success manager's heart. I'm totally guilty of this. Like I don't want to tell my success manager that I'm really not that thrilled about the product because I like them as a person and I know if I tell them hey, success manager, this product's really not working for me. I'm probably going to go, like, it just sets off all kinds of problems for them. Like, you know, they, they're going to have to do customer reviews and red and green, yellow and amber, like reports and all this other stuff. So, you know, you're just like, yeah, the product's great. And then you turn, you know. But if I could tell somebody where I knew it was going to go into a place where that person wasn't going to be judged, where I could be really honest and say, I love my success manager, but the product was terrible or my onboarding was awful or I just don't need it anymore. I think that's the opportunity here. I, I think so, because, yeah, you talk about churn. Um, I mentioned like somebody quit or was fired and you do an exit interview. We in software development have um, basically postmortems yep, uh, yep, when incidents yep. happen, right? Yep. But when you deprecate the system, when you have a new version, when you have a new API version, I don't think people really, you, everybody's just so happy to turn it off that nobody actually <laughs> analyzes yeah. what went well. What, what, yeah, no. There was exactly. a reason why you replaced yeah. it, but like, it was an exit interview for a given product or capability of like, hey, here's where we screw up. Because yeah. if you don't analyze that, you're probably going to make the same mistake again. But you bring up a really interesting point because I think the problem with postmortems, and again, the pro I'm, I'm guilty of this as a support leader, um, as a professional services leader, as, as a leader, is that the bias is typically toward the negative, right? Because we want to fix things. Like typically we want to solve problems and solving problems as opposed to like reinforcing positive behaviors. I think one of the I things I'm thinking about from a modeling perspective about how we summarize these interviews is maybe we have two summaries. Maybe we have like a, a positive summary and a negative summary. So I could imagine like a postmortem where, you know, we're evaluating the data that we were evaluating the qualitative data that comes out of a postmortem and we we pull out the positive stuff, because I guarantee you, if you talk to people after a postmortem, the only thing they remember is what went really wrong, right? Oh, they don't, absolutely. They don't like, remember all the things that went well. 
like in a <laughs> retrospective on an agile sprint cycle, right? Like talking to people, you usually start what went well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there really are like quick. five things, <laughs> and you can tell that those five things are not really they're a given, right? Like, yeah, yeah. like you will exactly. be a very dysfunctional yeah. exactly. organization. I had a keyboard you... on my computer. That went yeah. really well. Exactly. <laughs> my my battery on my yeah. Bluetooth keyboard is stayed on. Exactly. Whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, and when it's the bad stuff, there is a ton of stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. And then everybody's depressed. And then you have that people because these are people that you work with every single day. And therefore, um, you feel bad, like, because you know, whatever, like, I don't know, I'm going to complain an API, like, hey, somebody changed the contract, which broke everything. Exactly. Right. That somebody actually has a first name and a last name exactly. and it's in that call. So 100%. I cannot say that. So I'm like, well, we should. And then we twist our own words into something that oh is not God. actionable. Yes. Right. Like, yes. well, we should probably have an API lifecycle strategy. Yeah. Oh, cool. Somebody is going to write that down and nobody's going to care. No one's, yeah, exactly. So it, sure. it's that, that machine interaction. I do think that it gives you that freedom yeah. to be open. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it'd be cool if you, I mean, again, that's a use case we've talked about is, is doing post incident research using AI, because again, you can do it quickly. So you could do it like within hours, minutes, days of an incident, as opposed to, scheduling everyone, giving everyone together. Like if you could collect all that data right away and then summarize it, synthesize it, and then talk about it a couple weeks later, that's a really interesting opportunity for sure. So anyhow, more ideas over yeah. there. Um, <laughs> I don't have any data to back it up, but I, I have a good nose, I guess, like a good <laughs> like dog. Um, all right, so all of this is, um, it's coming to one like where we're talking about like the different types of analysis that you do. It comes back that Steve Jobs quote where he was quoting also Ford about like the faster horse and everybody can Google that. Like I don't, I'm not yeah. going to read it entirely, but it basically says customers don't know what they want. It's our job to predict and to do it. But that's cool if you have a billion dollar company or a trillion dollar company and you have the time to spend a ton of money on research and a bunch of stuff. And yes, they have deadlines and stuff like that. You're a small company, um, you're a B2C, you're a B2B that is just starting out. And I feel like we want to follow those steps. But you have talked to a lot of uh, product people and a lot of businesses. Do you see that as well? Is that like the legacy of that Steve Jobs quote that we are seeing? I, I don't, I didn't hear a lot of people say that. I would say most of the people were fairly tuned to what their customers want. But here's, this is how I think about that quote is Steve Jobs can get away with that quote, not because he's a billion dollar company, because he probably said that when Apple was like about to die for like this third time <laughs> or likely. something like, who knows? But the point is, is like, he's building consumer products that were going to really create new experiences. But, you know, the overwhelming majority of us are working to solve real problems that people have. Like the iPhone didn't really solve a problem. And at the end of the day, I and mean, then again, that's like the classic product that everyone talks about when they talk about that quote. Mm -hmm. um, and I would argue that Ford was probably solving a pretty real problem just in a novel way with, you know, an internal combustion engine um, instead of something being pulled by mammals. Um, but I think most of us are like we're solving problems. And so when you're solving problems, you got to listen to the people who have the problems. I mean, I think it's that simple. But if you're trying to create something really new and novel, that's cool too. You don't need, you probably don't want to listen to customers because they have no idea about this new novel thing that you're creating. I don't think it's resources. I think it's just what your product goal is. And I think a lot of people confuse what they're doing 
as some sort of like vision of the future and they're not really finding out what the problems that they're actually trying to solve. Again, I would argue, I'm not sure what problem the iPhone solved has created a lot of problems, but it definitely has created like an amazing platform for innovation and stuff like that. But like no one at any point was like, gosh, you know, if only I had a phone that could do X, Y, and Z, like there were parts of it. He just kind of put all that together. I think that's, that's the genius there, but not a lot of us have that opportunity to do something like that. And there's a ton of failures. Like oh, yeah. it's easy to think like, Oh Yeah. But most people who are building like cars instead of faster horses fail. <laughs> yes. There is the AI pin that was announced like a few months back. I think it's gone. Like yeah. it was yeah. just totally wrong. And like, yeah. but, but you know, but we need those ideas, right? I mean, to me, of like, course. cool, man, that's a cool, maybe it's not a good idea, but at least they tried, yeah. but no one's going to remember that five years from now. You know, but some, but we all remember Steve Jobs for the iPhone, but man, there's a ton of like iPhone-esque failures. Oh, like even with an Apple, then Newton back in the <laughs> yeah, day, well, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. so it was, it was there and it created a problems, you said, but also when it matured, it created new opportunities. Like, yeah. I don't know, rideshare, for example, right? Uber, Lyft, things like that, yeah, right? Tons so of, new oh, yeah, I mean, and, can't even imagine life without mobile It'd be ridiculous. <laughs> like he absolutely created way more opportunities and problems. But again, I think there's very far and few between these, these game changers. And there's been a lot of game changers that just, or attempts to change the game that like failed miserably. No one celebrates those, you know, no one celebrates all those, like, like <laughs> those graveyards of like products that never worked, but there's a lot of mediocre products that survive because they solve real problems that yeah. people are having today. And there were products that solve problems and still Google killed them because yeah. they do have a pretty big cemetery of good <laughs> yeah. products. Uh, Google Reader, I still yeah. miss it. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> okay. Sure. Um, when you mentioned churn, and I want to finish on, on, on this quote, right? Like um, when you mentioned churn, you mentioned like talking to clients, B2C and stuff like that. It feels like every single B2C product, it's a very transactional relationship, right? There is no loyalty um, between companies. Like it's really hard to create that Apple loyalty or that IKEA loyalty or like all of those things. Like, I don't know, like I was thinking, uh, I was buying a camera, right? Like a GoPro versus an Insta360 camera. Mm -hmm. I really, I had a, a GoPro before but I have no loyalty to it. Like the, in this sure. world of transactional relationship between customers and company, and then all the social media stuff. So um, how much value do you think there is in spending time with your clients? Well, I think that's the only way you can build something that solves problems. And I think, I don't know, I think the idea that we live in a purely transactional world is a little overblown. I mean, I think Apple's like the greatest example of this. Like it's a very high price luxury item, but I think like that, like, again, uh, I'm, I love Apple. I love their products, but I would, if it stopped working as well as it did for my use case, I would probably start looking for alternatives, but so far they've been able to maintain a pretty high bar of quality. That's kept me, loyal. And I think that's the key. And I think to understand what your customers want and to consistently deliver it, clearly people will pay premium prices for stuff if it works um, and it delivers value. So I think that the only way you can really understand, because what changes are customer preferences. So I think 
Apple's done a reasonably good job of kind of like moving with their customers and not moving too far ahead of them. Like, I think they're introducing AI at the right time. I think that's a great example. They could have probably dropped in a ton of AI on this last phone, but it probably would have been a terrible experience. And it was there. They just never call it out. They'll say yeah. AI, right? Yeah, There's exactly. a ton of stuff it's, going yeah. on on photos and face recognition. And yeah, but blah, exactly. Blah, blah. But, but, it, but it's never subtle. It's just like, oh, this is cool. And, and you could ignore it if you want. Like, you don't have to. It doesn't hit you in the face. Like, use this to generate magical castles with unicorns that, you know, and, and erase people from pictures. Like... I'm not sure if that's a great use case, you know, like, like there's probably some people that want to do this and it's like easy to see. But again, like, I, I just feel like they, they kind of stay in, they stay with their customers. They don't get too far ahead of them, but they don't get too far behind them either. But they're clearly listening and they're understanding like what the actual world use cases are. Um, but I think there's a lot of brands that have a lot of loyalty. Um but again, they, as long as they deliver value, right? I mean, that's that's the key. That's the you got to be able to solve your problems. Yeah, we can take a whole hour just talking about what's <laughs> yeah. a picture and how much do you edit it before it's no longer a picture. It's yeah. more like a Photoshop yeah. image. Um, and I have thoughts about it, and sometimes they are very yeah. strong. Sometimes <laughs> I'm like, well, actually, like I know before digital pictures there was still of editing going on and oh, you can absolutely. remove stuff. Yeah. And like, I, yeah. I read a lot of it and it was like, what makes a picture and a, a picture, a, a picture, right? Yeah, exactly. And what makes it a fact, right? Like and what, what makes, makes it, it a good memory? Yeah. Because it's usually not the perfect picture. The ones that brings back the, the good memory. Yes. So 100%. it's something very abstract that I know you can geek out with me <laughs> no, for no, a absolutely. long time on this. <laughs> I've been talking to like, yeah, a lot of people about this because I mean, there's that quote by the guy of Samsung, like, like, Phones haven't taken pictures, real pictures, like they're all imaginary mm -hmm. in the past like 10, 15 years. Again, the moment you have like three cameras taking the same, yeah, we could rabbit hole on this <laughs> <laughs> next time. But I, I, well, first of all, I want to thank you. It's a lot of your time. It's probably more than we expected, but <laughs> it's definitely, this is very good. I, I really like our conversation, two different perspectives. Um, everything around building a product. And I want to give you some time to plug in and send people to one study, to you, uh, to talk to you. So <laughs> yeah. you you can uh, you can promote yourself in the next few minutes. <laughs> I, think, I think Rick and I are both terrible self-promoters. So I'm just going to say go to one study, O-N-E study, S-T-U-D-Y dot A-I, um, and see what we're doing. We're about to launch a new marketing website. Um, that will be coming out. That will coincide with Rick's. Um, he's going to go, he's pitching us at a contest down in Fort Lauderdale in a couple of days. So um, <clears throat> we definitely even just tell us what you think about our website. Like we're, we've been very, very candid. We've struggled a little bit with getting the messaging right because we're doing something that's kind of obvious, but people are struggling to understand. And so we, we're really trying to get that right. But anyway, one study.ai, check us out, um, get a demo, get a pilot. Try us out. All we'll right. show you what's up. We'll get you a lot of qualitative feedback. Kinsey, thank you very thank much you, again. Man. Thank you, everybody, that it is watching or listening. I believe we have uh, made it very clear for you that you can listen to this and you don't have to watch it, but we're available <laughs> on YouTube or anywhere you get your podcast. So until the next one, I hope to have you back soon. Uh, definitely. All Thanks, right. Cesar. Bye, guys. Thank you.